When it comes to weight management, we tend to focus on what we eat, but Noom's approach puts the focus on why we eat. That's a game changer. Noom uses science and personalization to help you manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up today. Welcome everyone to Long Ball Legacies, the show on the Pitcherless Podcast Network where we dive into the stories, myths, and legends and players who helped shape the game of baseball throughout its history across the world and the players who help make it the game we love and help make us love the game itself. I'm your host, Daniel Port. I'm very excited to have you all here today. I hope uh, this podcast episode finds you well. And I appreciate your patience with me getting this episode out. I'm sure it's the highlight of your day and of your weekend. And I appreciate your patience with me getting this episode out uh, a little bit later, getting it out roughly around Saturday night here in Denver. Normally I try to get it out earlier in the day, but I feel like this summer has been so crazy that every week some kind of extenuating circumstance has has forced me to push the episode back a little bit or try and get it out a little bit later and I don't want to compromise the quality of the episode or what we're doing to try and rush it out so I appreciate your patience thank you for sticking with me here we've got a really interesting episode for you here today that I'm excited to talk about so as you remember from our previous episode on Barry Bonds we're exploring sort of the prototype of the sort of baseball player with that chip on his shoulder the guy who always seems to have a little edge to his swagger as opposed to the Griffey or the Henderson sort of comparisons we looked at really someone who has a little more of an edge a little bit more of a chip on his shoulder that always has something to prove and I wanted to continue that theme this week as I called it kind of the guy who plays angry and there's the person we're going to talk about there's a lot of debate over who is the greatest hitter in baseball is it Barry Bonds, the subject of our last episode, Major League Home Run Leader? Is it Baseball's all-time hits leader, Ichiro Suzuki? Or is it Worldwide Home Run Leader and number one player in the Long Ball Legacy's all-time list, which is, in my opinion, the definitive list on this subject, uh, Sadaharu O? You could argue for Mantle. You could argue for Mays. You could argue for Maris or Ruth. But for many, the first answer leaps into your mind is Ted Williams. Legend had it that he had the most perfect swing in baseball history. And you can go back and see pictures of him swinging and and see video of him swinging. And it is the most beautiful swing I have ever seen. The man literally wrote the definitive book on hitting. It's the same book that more than half a century later, hitters still use. And would inspire the flyball revolution in today's game in many ways. Ted Williams' impact on the game of baseball in terms of how it is played both back then and today goes so far beyond anything he did on the field. And when we get to the numbers, which is our, which are pretty impressive in and of themselves, it's hard to fathom that part. And that's saying a lot because man, the things that Ted Williams did on the field were pretty amazing too. And we'll dive into them in a minute. Uh, but just to give a little snapshot here over a 19 year career, he hit 344 for his career. 
with a 482 OBP, which is number one all time, by the way, with a 1.116 OPS. So for his entire career, he hit over 1.1. And for the record, he also hit 52 home runs. He's the hitter Joey Votto described as, it was like he was carved out of stone for hitting. He was made like David just for this particular endeavor. Like David. That, that's crazy. He's not wrong. But then, talking about all this, why is he being included with Barry Bonds in the players with a chip on his shoulder category? If you'll allow me a tangent, I think this will make sense. My favorite TV show ever is Justified. That was on FX a few years ago and just I got a new reboot. And at the end of the pilot episode of that show, there's this incredible scene where the main character, Raylan Givens, who's played by Timothy Oliphant, is talking to his ex-wife, and he claims he's not an angry man. And at first, if you've been watching it, you agree. Like, the character's incredibly laconic, and he never raises his voice. He never lashes out at anyone throughout the entire episode. And in the scene, his his ex-wife, Wyona, stops him and says, Raylan, and this is the direct quote, Raylan, you do a good job of hiding it. And I suppose most folks don't see it, but honestly, you're the angriest man I've ever known. And if you're watching the episode, it hits the audience that indeed, throughout the entire episode, he's been angry this entire time. It's just like simmering beneath the surface where you can see it if you're looking for it, but otherwise you'd miss it. You stick Ted Williams in that scene and say, Ted, honestly, the angriest man I've ever known, and it would work. Like Raylan in the episode, and thank you for granting me that tangent. I just like to talk about the show, if nothing else. You have to know to look for it. But once you do, man, as I was doing the research for this episode, it is, it's everywhere. And not to say that the chip on his shoulder wasn't justified, if you see what I did there. As you'll see through this episode between his childhood, fighting in World War II alone, and Korea for the record, let alone his battles with the media and the fans, he had some pretty solid reasons to be bitter. But it's hard to deny he played with an edge, that, that his game had a little extra uh, F.U., to it if you'll if you'll get my drift reading through his write-up for the athletic joe posanski really does a great job of outlining williams's feuding with the fans and media but it was there too in bill nolan's write-up for saber and on every time you look up the life story of ted williams it's hard to miss that edge that that sort of the constant battle that he had back and forth between the media and the fans and there was a lot of layers to this issue, and in some ways both sides are right and both sides are wrong. Williams was a confident heck. He was cocky. And all savants, and, and Williams was certainly a savant, especially when it came to hitting a baseball. You get the idea that Ted Williams saw the world on a different wavelength than we mere mortals do. And you have to wonder if that ended up putting him in this place where we as fans and media folk didn't see the world, and especially hitting, the same way he did. And he couldn't make us understand. We couldn't see baseball through his eyes. And he couldn't understand why we didn't see it the way he did. And that is a recipe for a contentious relationship. It describes Williams as someone who was obsessed with how he was perceived publicly. And always felt like he wasn't appreciated enough. And truth be told... He probably wasn't, but it wasn't, it, it, this is, I don't want to paint this this picture in one way because it wasn't all negative. Many writers, including Posansky and Nolan, wrote about how much Williams loved the game of baseball 
and wrote about the childlike enthusiasm and joy that was apparent constantly when he was playing. And that he was more than just... Uh, if, you, if you pick up anything out of talking about Ted Williams, I feel like when we looked at Bonds last week, there becomes a pretty straightforward one-note path to his story. And Ted Williams isn't that. Did Ted Williams play with an edge? Absolutely. Did he have a little extra sort of stick it to everyone who doubted him to his game? Absolutely. But there's so much more to it than that. There's so much more depth. He was never at any point in his career or in his life one thing. He was an incredibly complex man. And in terms of baseball, he had maybe the greatest eye in baseball, not just for drawing walks, but for knowing what pitches were ones he could drive and do damage with. He could hit for power. He could hit for average. He understood the game and knew it in a way almost no one else did. And it's just a, a truly fascinating two-sided coin, if you'll allow the, the metaphor, that is Ted Williams. Now, I've already laid out some of Ted Williams' outrageous all-time stats. I just said this a, a few minutes ago, but... There's even more when you take a big-picture view, as we love to do when we start things off here on the Long Ball Legacies podcast. So, Williams plays for 19 years, entirely for the Red Sox. He wins two MVPs and finishes in the top four in voting seven more times. He gets robbed of many MVPs. We'll get there. Don't worry. He hit over 300 for every single year of his career but one. 18 of 19 seasons. His lowest career OPS plus in a season is 114 at the age of 40 years old. The next lowest was in his rookie year when he had a 160 OPS+. plus. That's, that's 18 of 19 seasons. He's at least 60% better by OPS than the average hitter. I, like, that's astonishing. He hit for an OPS over one every single year of his career, but one as well. And for five consecutive seasons, he hit for an OPS over 1.1. And his 1.16 career OPS is second all-time. He hit over 30 home runs eight times and his 20th all-time in home runs. He's 14th all-time in war with 121.8 war, finishing 20th in runs scored and his 16th in RBI. And by the way, this is with missing three complete prime seasons thanks to World War II and probably another about year and a half, if not more, thanks to the Korean War. So, imagine, you hear these numbers and they're astonishing. Imagine if he'd gotten those years in as well. It's, it is a genuinely astonishing athletic achievement. And what he was able to accomplish in terms of career numbers while missing, like I said, close to five years, if not actually probably more closer to five to seven years thanks to the wars and injuries. It's just, it really is incredible and that's even just that's just the statistics Ted Williams is so much more than just those statistics as again I hope to establish within this episode but before we do that we're going to dive into his story here now but let's take our first break here and when we come back I will regale you with the story of one Ted Williams this podcast is sponsored by underdog Want to make money making picks on MLB games? Then you have to try Underdog Fantasy, the easiest place to play fantasy sports. In Underdog's Pick'em game, you just pick your favorite baseball players and predict whether they will go higher or lower on stats like strikeouts, hits, and more. 
Pick the two to five players, get all your picks right, and you can win up to 20 times your money in a single night. Be sure to sign up with the promo code PITCHERLIST and Underdog will double your first deposit up to $100 so you have some bonus cash to start playing with. Again, that's UnderdogFantasy.com or Underdog Fantasy in the App Store. Sign up with promo code PITCHERLIST and get your first deposit doubled up to $100. Must be 18 or older, 19 or older in Alabama and Nebraska, 21 or older in Massachusetts and Arizona, and present in a state where underdog fantasy operates. Terms apply. Concerned with your play? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.ncpgambling.org. In Arizona, call 1-800-NEXT-STEP. In New York, call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY. In Tennessee, call 1-800-889-9789. Welcome back. So, Theodore Samuel Williams was born on August 30th, 1918, to Sam and May Williams. Ted had a rough upbringing. Apparently, his father was barely in the picture, and while he was many things, mostly he was a fairly abusive alcoholic. Again, we see his connection to bonds here. His mother was also gone a lot, but for the polar opposite reason. Uh, she was doing charity work for the Salvation Army all over the world, and so was rarely home. And this left Ted really to fend for himself in a lot of ways alongside his brother Danny. According to most stories, Williams filled that void by playing baseball morning, noon, and night. When he couldn't find someone to play with, he had many friends, many uh, adults in his life who would go throw him batting practice constantly. And he would just play and play. And when he didn't have someone, uh, legend had it that he would take uh, dry swings in front of a mirror or out in his driveway and I mean, he taught himself how to be the greatest hitter of all time. As he grew older, Williams excelled playing high school ball for Hoover High in San Diego as both a pitcher and a hitter. And in fact, in 1963, while he was still in high school, he was actually signed to a professional team with a name you'll uh, recognize, the San Diego Padres. This was before they had become a major league team. They were then a minor league affiliate for the Boston Red Sox. And at the age of 17, he makes his minor league debut, playing in 42 games where he hits 271 with 8 doubles, 11 RBIs, and 18 runs scored with no home runs. Now, it doesn't sound great, but not too shabby considering he wasn't even old enough to vote yet. And he was already uh, doing that well in minor in the minor leagues. Now, he finishes high school the following year, 1937, and he plays again for the Padres, hitting 291 with 23 home runs, 98 RBIs, 66 runs scored with 24 doubles across 138 games played at just 18 years old. Now, at this point already, word is starting to get around the Boston sports world that Williams could be the next big thing in Beantown, and he earns a spring training invite that following year while being promoted to their double-A team in Minnesota. He destroys the ball there, winning the double-A triple crown, hitting 366 with a 1.182 OPS, 43 home runs, 30 doubles, 142 RBIs, 130 runs scored, all in just 148 games. That's got to be one of the greatest all-time minor league seasons ever. Full stop. By now, the hype for Williams had reached a fever pitch in Boston. Everyone knew that this would be Williams' last season in the minors. Now, the fans and media were correct here because Williams would start the season with the Red Sox at the tender age of 20 years old. He would set the, the entire Northeast, I swear, on fire, hitting 327 as a rookie with a 1.045 OPS 
which is good for a 160 OPS plus to go along with 31 home runs and MLB leading 145 RBIs as well as 131 runs scored to go along with 44 doubles and 11 triples. By the way, his 436 OBP would be the lowest of his career until 1958, nearly 20 years later. As a rookie, he's worth 6.7 war that season as a right fielder. The following season, he would play over in left field where he would stay the entire rest of his career. And the one flaw in Williams' game was he was not considered an especially great outfielder. But the move over to left field suited him. He finishes fourth in MVP voting, which was a bit high. But given his incredible debut and all the hype around him, you can understand how the narrative was there. Now, in case you're curious, only two other rookies in baseball history played 145 games in their rookie eligibility and had an OPS over one. Ted Williams in 1938, Albert Pujols in 2001, and Aaron Judge in 2017. That's it. Williams' OPS is second to Judge's by a mere .004 points of OPS. That's how close they were. Despite, by the way, Judge hitting 21 more home runs than Williams that year. Oh, and just to really round this out, in 2017, Judge struck out 208 times that season. Do you know how many times Williams struck out in 1939? 64. Let that soak in. It's, just, it's an incredible rookie season. One of the best rookie seasons ever. Now, if you wondered if Williams was just getting lucky because he was a rookie and no one knew him yet, no one knew his game, you would have been very wrong in 1940. The kid, as he was called, would hit 344 with a league-leading 442 OBP. For the record, he would lead the league starting this season in OBP for the next decade and then some. He would also lead the league in runs scored with 134 while driving in 113 runs and hitting 23 home runs, 43 doubles to go along with a 1.036 OPS, which is good for a 162 OPS plus. He's named it the first of his 19 All-Star games and somehow despite finishing just .1 war behind MVP Hank Greenberg with a 6.6 mark, he finishes 14th in MVP voting. Now, to be fair, Greenberg hit 340 with 46 home runs and 150 RBI, so it's it's hard to argue against him winning the award that year, you know. But, you know, Williams certainly had an argument. Now, at the same time, Williams is gaining a reputation already as one of the most inquisitive and intellectual players in the game. But there was also some signs of the darker side of his relationship with with those that he played the game with and those who observed him playing the game. Boston was always, I mean, it's always had a reputation as being a tough town to play. And even then, that was true. And it, listen, no offense to my Boston friends. I know I have a few who listen to this podcast. And of course, no offense to my, my Boston listeners in general. But they'll heckle anyone, right? That is a town that will absolutely rip into anyone. And they feel they're not pulling their weight. I've seen and heard David Ortiz and Pedro get heckled in Boston. I mean, this is Pedro. And Williams was beloved in Boston. And it still happened. That's just the town. And the Boston media didn't help much as they really reacted, especially some of the old guard in the Boston media, reacted poorly to Williams' cockiness and, and swagger. They would call him things like Terrible Ted and give him terrible nicknames in the media. 
And a lot of that was, from what I understand, also it's a great way to sell papers and stir up controversy and get people reading what you're writing. So it's not like there wasn't also motivation to do it. But it was contentious, and, and, and they were critical of young Williams. And I'll admit, there's a part of me that kind of kind of sometimes feels like Boston didn't always deserve Ted Williams because of that. You, I mean, he's, he, you, you, you can't heckle Ted Williams. It's crazy. But, but they did. And for his part, Williams didn't always handle it either. It's not to say he's blameless in this situation by any means. In the write-up that I mentioned earlier for, for Sabre.org, uh, the, Williams is quoted as saying that he had what he called rabbit ears and that he could hear one loud detractor over hundreds of cheering fans. And it's kind of like the, the Jordan meme from uh, The Last Dance that, that he took up personally. And he was quoted as saying he was never very coy, never very diplomatic. And as a result, I would get myself in a ringer. I was impetuous. I was tempestuous. I blew up, not acting, but reacting. I'd get so darn mad. He said a different word, but he'd throw bats, kick the columns in the dugout so that sparks flew, tear out of the, the plumbing, knock out the lights, darn near kill myself, I'd scream. I'd scream out my frustration. And this is just to fan reaction. And you have to wonder, we talked a lot with Bonds last week um, about how so much of Bonds's attitude and actions were about trying to get everyone to to love him in some ways. He wanted to be liked. And you see this with Williams, that he really struggled with this idea of the fans liking him when he was doing well and be against him the next day, if, if, even if he didn't... Because it's baseball. You're going to fail. Failure's baked into the game, right? It's something such a, a wild thing to think about with baseball that... These days, if you hit 300, if you really stop and think about it, that means you got to hit three out of uh, every 10 at-bats. And so that means you failed seven out of 10 times. And we consider that good for the record. Uh, that is a good batting average. <laughs> and it's hard to play a sport where, especially when you're this good and this confident in your own abilities, to, to have people root for you when you succeed and then also then turn on you the moment you fail. Because that, that's just how baseball is. It, it, failure is baked into the game. It's not to say Williams was blameless in this whole thing, right? And in fact, he took this, uh, to give you an idea of how personally he took this, one thing Ted Williams never did, when you hit a home run, a big home run, especially at home, you come out and you come back out for a curtain call, you tip your cap, right? Williams never did it. He refused. And he openly would say, I will never do it. And to say, for the record, Man hit over 500 home runs in his career, never once tipped his cap. He took it personally, and there's an interesting thought to this. That's you know, the same thing with Bonds, and obviously Bonds took it to the extreme. He let taking that personally so motivate him that he did turn to steroids and turn to things that probably weren't the healthiest thing for him, and his behavior was unhealthy in ways beyond just how he talked to the media or things like that. But Williams channeled it. Williams definitely used that to drive him. So many things that he accomplished about saying, I will prove to you, I will show you that I'm the best hitter who's ever lived. It was, he knew how to, not always healthily, channel it, but he knew how to channel it to drive him in this way to, to improve his performances. Now, at this point, by Ted Williams standards, he hadn't really had his true breakout year. But 1941 changed all that. This is the season. This is the season, if you know nothing else about Ted Williams, about 1941... 
because this is the season that Ted Williams hits over 400 for the year. And no one had even come close to, to he had 406 that year. And no one had really come close to that really since the, what we think of like the modern era of baseball. Very few had come even close to that. And no one has come close since. And think about it this way. If you want to think about how incredible hitting 406, which was, he had 185 hits that season in roughly 456 plate appearances. Now, you know, he could have gone oh for the next 161 at-bats. And that's how long it would have taken him to fall under 300 for the season. Zero for 161. That's nuts. He would have gone like, you think about it, what, you get usually three or four at-bats a game. Gosh, you're talking he probably could have gone like 50 games without a hit and still hit over 300. That's how incredible he played that year. A story uh, Posansky tells in his athletic article about Williams hitting 400. So it meant a lot to Williams and that he was just, it was all he was obsessed with every day. His teammates would talk about it. And at one point, there was the roughly coming up on the last day of the season or so. And he was, he goes in the final game of the season, right? Hitting point three nine nine five. Now that rounds up to 400. That's how it would have been listed everywhere. It would have been rounded up on baseball cards, but everywhere would have been listed as 400. And uh, as Posansky tells the story, Williams was famously given the option to sit that day. And I'm reading from his article. And would have led his batting average run up to 400. And as you undoubtedly know, he did not take that option, which is something that has been celebrated throughout the years. That part has been over-celebrated, to be honest. Of course he played. He wasn't hitting 400. Uh, he was hitting .3995. And sure, it's easy to say that rounds up now, but nobody saw it that way then. After So apparently he went one for four that day. I'm moving from the story now. And so you saw headlines about him dropping below 400, you know, whatnot. And he comes up, and there were so many points of time, you know, because he, got, I guess he got a hit in his first at-bat. So he could have sat then and was given the option to. And he he knew that which one that he would do would drop him below 400. I guess he homered off of in his next at-bat, which put him up to 402. And then he singles again in his third at-bat that keeps raising his average. And he ends up going four for four on the day. So that brings up his average to four or five. And basically the, the gist of it was he could have gone, he could have played a whole nother game and gone zero oh for five and would still be playing 400. And he, he actually ends up playing, I guess there was a double header that day is the way that I think the story goes. And so he ends up going six for eight throughout the whole thing. He gets to 406 and that's the last time anyone has hit over 400 for a season now that's not the only thing though that that Williams did that year that was remarkable Uh, so just to list a few other things he led the league in home runs with 37 and he also led the league in runs scored with 135 also walks OBP slugging and OPS with a 1.257 mark I'm sorry a 1.287 mark which was good for a 235 OPS plus 135% 135% better than the average hitter that year, in case you're wondering. He walked 147 times, which is remarkable. But here's the crazy part. 
hang on, your jaw's about to hit the floor. He struck out just 27 times that year. 27. I think I struck out 27 times just reading that number if I tried to play in the majors. 27 strikeouts to 147 walks. It's, it's incredible. Just incredible. Now, the thing that you have to understand about the season is Williams doesn't win the MVP. He doesn't win an MVP this year. Like I'm blown away that he doesn't win the MVP. Do you know why he doesn't win the MVP? Because this is the same year Joe DiMaggio hit in 56 straight games. Yes. One of the most, in my opinion, one of the more overrated feats in baseball. Don't get me wrong. It's incredibly hard. Incredibly difficult. But it just... I don't, Pazanski puts it best. During his 56-game hitting streak, DiMaggio hit 408 with a 1.180 OPS. For Williams... The entire 1941 season, he hit 406 with a 1.288 OPS. I don't understand how you don't give him the, the MVP this season. And especially when you look at the fact that Williams led the league in war. He was worth 10.4 war that year. And I know war wasn't a thing then, but DiMaggio was impressively worth 9.3 war. But Williams had him beat by a full 1.1 war. He was the best player in the league that year. I mean, and obviously, you've heard the statistics. So you've heard everything here. It blows my mind to be a fly on the wall in the room when they counted those votes. I, I don't understand it. It's important to make one other note real quick. I know normally I would talk about playoff performances and how things go in the playoffs. And you would imagine after a season like this, the Reds have to be in the playoffs. But it's worth remembering in the 1940s like this, there really wasn't the playoffs, so to say. The top team in the NL by record played the top team in the AL by record. That's it. There was just the World Series. So keep that in mind. We're not going to talk as much about the playoffs because Williams actually only goes to the World Series once in his career. And rather than just say every single season, and the Red Sox didn't make the playoffs, and the Red Sox didn't make the playoffs, I'll talk about when he does, okay? But it's worth noting at this point, World War II is tearing across Europe. And shortly after Williams completes one of the greatest history, uh, hitting seasons in the history of baseball. That December, Pearl Harbor gets bombed by the Japanese, drawing America into the war and kicking the draft into full swing. Now, initially, Williams was exempt from the draft because he was his mother's sole provider, and that meant you weren't eligible for the draft. Uh, it was, and it's worth noting throughout this whole time period, it's pretty common for athletes to face questions about their service or uh, lack thereof. I think we crossed this with guys Muhammad Ali and I think I think obviously I understand the public sentiment especially for something like World War II which felt like something so much bigger with so much larger stakes for, for obvious reasons but I also understand where the athletes at this time were coming from it's not a uh, being an athlete is not a job you have for a lifetime or really even half a lifetime if you're lucky sure they make a lot of money in any given year but then that money has to last a lifetime and there's a lot of luck involved there too and obviously everyone athletes bankers teachers whoever that chose to serve during world war ii of course faced difficult decisions and sacrificed a ton and it isn't to say that athletes sacrificed more by any means but losing two to three of your prime earning years uh, especially when those are limited could have serious repercussions for the rest of an athlete's life. And especially for an athlete like Williams, who did not go to college, that was less essential back then, but still a lot to consider. And 
With that in mind, amongst I'm sure many other factors, including supporting his mother, Williams chose to accept his exemption, and he plays baseball in 1942, which was an unpopular decision amongst many. And he heard about it throughout the season, and that aided him. Now, despite all that, though, he staged one heck of a follow-up to his should-have-been MVP all-time season. He again leads the league in average with a 356 mark, an OBP of the 499 mark as well. Uh, he also leads the league in slugging and OPS, which had a 1.147 mark, which was good for a 216 OPS+. Plus. He also leads the league in home runs with 36, in RBIs with 137, and runs with 141. Now, thanks to leading the league in average home runs and RBIs, he wins his first Triple Crown. Now, he goes to his third straight All-Star game and finishes second in MVP voting for the second year in a row, despite accumulating 10.5 war that year, which was 2.8 war higher than any hitter in the American League, including the winner, Joe Gordon. It's absolute highway robbery that Will Williams is a win that year. He was just leaps and bounds better than anyone else in the American League. It's, it's just insane. Like, how in the world do you win the Triple Crown? And not win the MVP. Two years in a row. He's just absolutely robbed of the MVP award. And I don't get it. But anyways, now that he's secured more financial security for his mother. And having proved that 1941 wasn't a one-time fluke. Williams enlists after the season. And he trains to become a pilot with the Navy and the Marine Corps. Where he excels so much that he's made an instructor. He basically trains than other pilots for the remainder of his service, and never ends up seeing live combat during World War II. At this point, Ted Williams returns to America and to the Boston Red Sox for the 1946 season after having missed three seasons. In fact, we're talking prime seasons from the ages of 24 to 26. And you have to wonder if the war ends up costing Williams close to 100-plus home runs, probably at least one MVP trophy, let alone other marks and probably when you think about it he's put up nine to ten war every year you're probably talking yeah, we had 120 what 120 plus war he gets up to about 150 160 you never know he could have really challenged some of the all-time numbers there and it's just it's a real obviously world war ii is a tragedy on a whole nother level that is so much more important than baseball and i would never want to diminish any of that but it is still a shame that that we lose these prime years for Ted Williams. Now, you would be right in your thinking if you would expect some sort of rust or falling off in performance from Williams in, in 1946 considering he had missed so much time. But here's the thing. There wasn't any. Somehow, despite barely playing baseball while he served, Williams picked right up where he left off without missing a beat. There's maybe five athletes in history that could pull that off to miss that much time and then come back and still perform at an elite high level right away. He hits 342 with a league-leading uh, 497 OBP and a league-leading 1.164 OPS, which is good for a 215 OPS+. Plus. He hits 38 home runs, 37 doubles, and 8 triples to go along with 123 RBI and a league-leading 142 runs. He's named to the All-Star Game, and for the first time in his career, he finally wins the league MVP. It was a true no-brainer decision, considering he was worth 10.6 war that year. Perhaps more, even more importantly for the first and unfortunate last time of Williams' career, he takes the Sox to the promised land, making the World Series. Unfortunately at the time, I guess what sometimes players would do, because there's a bit of a gap between 
the World Series and the end of the regular season, players are playing these like sort of exhibition games that kind of get tuned up for the World Series. And unfortunately, Williams is hurt in uh, one of these exhibition games right before the series, and he struggles the entire series, mustering just five hits across seven games and only one RBI as Boston will lose to St. Louis in that series, which in many ways only intensified some of the criticisms and then some of Williams' feuds with the media after this series. Now, 1947 saw Williams healthy again and you know, just winning another triple crown like you do by hitting 343 with 32 home runs and 114 RBIs. He also led the league in runs with 125. He also led an OBP and OPS with a 1.133 mark, which is good for a 205 OPS+. Plus. He's an all-star yet again for the fifth consecutive season and finishes second in MVP voting. Now, just because it didn't take place in Montreal doesn't mean this wasn't a complete screw job for my WWE fans from the 90s. Williams leads all hitters in the AL 9.5 war, which was 2.2 war more than Lou Boudreaux, who had the second highest total at 7.3. Here's the thing. Boudreaux didn't win either. Joe DiMaggio did with just 4.7 war. Williams nearly doubled his war that year. DiMaggio doesn't lead Williams in any of the major categories that year outside of stolen bases, where DiMaggio threw, stole three bases and Williams stole none. That's it. There's no good reason DiMaggio should have won that year. It's absolutely crazy. I just can't think of any good explanation outside of the fact that Williams, uh, like Bonds when we talked about last week, feuded with the media and was seen as cantankerous and, and, and whatnot. Joe DiMaggio is like getting quoted in Simon and Garfunkel songs later. That's how, like iconic he was to to American baseball and it's really the only reason I can think of for this the only other thing I can think of maybe is that Boston finishes well behind New York so maybe that had something to do with it but either way the best player in the American League that year did not win the award again talk about when we compare Williams to Bonds uh, overall Bonds wins seven MVPs Williams absolutely should have too there's just it seems year after year Williams is not getting the proper respect and, and recognition for what are incredible, earth-shaking performances. I like When you think of Ted Williams had a chip on his shoulder, I get it. I absolutely get it. I feel unappreciated too. Now, we move into 1948 and rinse and repeat. He hits 369, which leads the league, with a 497 OBP, which again, leads the league, and a one point one. 1-2 OPS, which, yep, leads the league, and is good for a 189 OPS+. Plus. He has just 25 home runs, but leads the league in doubles with 45, while driving 127 runs and scoring 124 times. He's an all-star, and finished third in the MVP voting. Now, he shouldn't have won it that year, but he should have finished in second, thanks to his 8.3 war that year, which beat out DiMaggio's 6.9 war, who did finish second. But, either way, neither of them should have won it, because Lou Boudreaux finally does it has just I mean an incredible season with a fantastic 10.4 war so this time the award goes to the right guy but the season ends in even more heartbreak than just not winning the MVP as the Red Sox fall behind the Yankees on the final day of the season to barely miss making the playoffs in the World Series in I mean just true heartbreaking fashion now 1949 saw better results for Williams as he would win his second MVP award after hitting 343 with a league-leading 490 OBP as well as a league-leading 1.141 OPS, which was good for a 191 OPS+. 
He leads all hitters with 159 RBIs and 150 runs. But he also leads the AL in home runs with 43 and doubles with 39. All in all, just a fantastic season and a well-deserved MVP. As his 9-war led all AL hitters by a full 2-war. For the record, Williams was so good that year that he missed his third Triple Crown, which would have been the most in MLB history by a mere one-thousandth of a point in batting average. <laughs> That's an astronomically small margin. And it's one of those would have been. We're talking about a single hit, if not less. I mean, a walk or a sacrifice fly or something could have separated them in batting average. That's how tight it was. And perhaps even more heartbreaking was for the second year in a row, the Red Sox missed the playoffs by losing again on the last day of the season, again, keeping Williams and the Red Sox out of the playoffs and the World Series. Now, in 1950, Williams is even better. He had 25 home runs and 83 RBIs at the All-Star break. Let that sink in for a second. 25 home runs and 83 RBIs at the All-Star break. That's how good he was hitting. But then in the All-Star game, he runs into the wall trying to make a catch and shatters his elbow and misses most of the rest of the season. Now, it's impossible to know what would have happened the rest of the season, but it'll always feel like this season was a historic one that got away. And... It's even more devastating because this injury would haunt Williams for the rest of his career, in all honesty. It would keep coming back and keep wearing on him throughout the entire rest of his career. Now, Williams comes back mostly healthy in 1951, and considering the severity of the elbow injury and the recovery that comes along with that, he plays pretty well. He hits 318 with 30 home runs, 28 doubles, 126 RBIs, and 109 runs scored. He did lead the league in OBP with a 464 mark, an OPS with a 1.019 mark, which is good for a 164 OPS+. plus. He's an all-star and finishes 13th in MVP voting, despite, and I know I sound like a broken record at this point, but he did lead all AL hitters in war uh, with 7.1, which is 1.8 war more than the winner, Yogi Berra, and a full win higher than the second-best AL hitter at a juiced, a juiced, just. He wouldn't face any injury issues in 1952, he would face a different sort of derailment to his season in the form of the Korean War. The age of 34, Williams is once again pressed into military service as a pilot, and this time he sees combat as well, despite being requ- requesting, he at the time requested to be assigned to training. He's not a young man anymore, he's 34 years old, and instead he ends up seeing combat. And actually there are stories of him getting shot down once, and I mean, just you have to imagine this weighed on... And Williams probably took a toll on his body as well, you would imagine. Now, because of this, he only plays six games in the 1952 season. Now, 1953 wouldn't fare much better as he would battle ear infections while over in Korea. And finally, as the war was coming to an end and became clear the war was, uh, was going to end, he was returned home to the States to get healthy and is well-received by Major League Baseball. He was even invited to play in the All-Star game as a special guest, even though he didn't play in the season yet. He even plays a decent chunk of the season, getting in 37 games total on the year. Now, you feel like at some point coming back from all this turmoil and whatnot, well, good luck was coming Williams' way, but no. His stretch of bad luck continues as he would break his collarbone in the spring training of 1954, which limited him to just 117 games. 
I've never broken my collarbone, but I cannot imagine trying to swing a bat with a recently healed collarbone. Williams does it, though, and when he plays, he did it well, as he hits 345 with 29 home runs, 23 doubles, 89 RBIs, and 93 runs scored. He leads the league that year and walks in OBP as well as OPS with a 1.148 OPS, which is good for a 201 OPS+. Plus. He's an all-star, and despite missing so much time, he finishes the year second in the AL in war. With an impressive 7.5 total, just .7 war behind Mini Minoso, who played over 35 more games than Williams. That's how good he was uh, and how close he came to being the best hitter in the AL anyways. Now, it doesn't matter because... Once again, Yogi Bear would win the MVP despite finishing with just 5.3 war on the season. This is we're not done with my my feud with Yogi Berra here, but we'll get there in a second. Now, unfortunately, 1955 brought more turmoil as well, Williams technically retires. It seems like, from what I understand from the re, the write-ups I was reading, it seems like it goes for divorce-related reasons um, and legal reasons. But he technically retires. And misses a decent chunk of the beginning of the season before he can come back right around the end of May. And once he's back in the league, though, he dominates. Hitting 356 across 98 games with 28 home runs, 83 RBIs, 77 runs scored to go along with a 496 OBP and a 1.200 OPS, which is good for a 225 OPS+. plus. Now, again, he finished a ton of, I'm sorry, he missed a ton of games. He still finishes third in war in the AL with 6.9 war and finishes fourth in the MVP voting. Now, yet again, Yogi Berra, the menace of... Uh, Yogi Berra is an incredible piece of baseball history. I don't want to... But the menace upon the MVP award wins the MVP with just 4.5 war. The award absolutely should have gone to Mickey Mantle, who had 9.5 war on the season. I know I like the the Juan Gonzalez MVP robbery award I like to bring up here. On this podcast, I mean, at this point, I wonder if it should be renamed the Yogi Berra MVP Robbery Award. My gosh. And again, Yogi Berra is a beloved and incredible baseball player that's a huge part of baseball history. But I like I don't know how you justify him winning so many MVPs when he was not the best player in the league. Now, in 1956, we finally see things start to turn around for Williams. He finally gets a more healthy season. He plays in 136 games. But you have to wonder if at 37 years old, all the games, the recent injuries, and probably to some degree, again, his military history, his military service, they had all started to take its toll. As he had what would be considered a, a great year for anybody else, but a down year for Williams as he hits 345 with a 479 OBP and a 1.084 OPS, which was good for a 172 OPS plus as he chipped in 82 RBIs and 71 runs combined with 24 RBI, 24 home runs and 28 doubles. Again, a great season for all but a handful of players across baseball history. He, he's an all-star again that year, and he finishes sixth in MVP voting, which is pretty spot on for a 6.1 war. And that year, Mickey Mantle ran away with the award, putting up an absurd 11.2 war that year. In case you want to know more about that year, and, and the year before, and a lot of these Mickey Mantle years to bring up, go back and listen to my uh, podcast episode I did a month or two ago on Mickey Mantle. Uh, it, it's I like to think it's a good listen, but uh, you you'll hear more about that season if you go listen to that episode. But moving into 1957, I had once heard the phrase uh, "a candle burns brightest just before it goes out." Now, apparently, the quote is credited to the famous old Hollywood actress. 
Gene Tierney. But I, and this sounds very familiar to me, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I actually heard it during my high school years in a Dragon Ball Z episode. But either way, I think it applies to Ted Williams in 1957. At this point, he's 38. He's played 1,815 Major League games, shattered an elbow, served in two wars. There's just little reason to suspect that Ted Williams still had one of his finest years in him, but his whole career was about proving everyone wrong, and boy, did he ever. Across 132 games, he hits an absurd 388 with a 526 OBP, a 731 slugging percentage, and a 1.257 OPS, which is good for a 233 OPS+. Plus all of which those numbers led the league. He chipped in 38 home runs, 28 doubles, 87 RBIs, and 96 runs scored. There have only been two players in history to ever play 120 games in a season at the age of 38 and put up a season of uh, with an OPS of 1.2 or higher. Ted Williams and Barry Bonds. That's it. And if we're being honest, Williams doing it is probably more impressive as there's never been anything that suggests Williams cheated or used illegal substances to pull pull that season off, which we obviously know makes Bonds' year that year pretty suspect, since that was in his steroid-using days. But he, to give even more he, uh, no, notoriety to how incredible this season was, he finishes just six hits shy of hitting 400 again. Could you imagine hitting 400 twice in your career? And this would mark the seventh time he would win the batting title. The only player in the modern era to win more battling, batting titles than Ted Williams was Tony Gwen with eight. It's just an incredible season. He's an all-star for the 11th time and he finishes second in MVP voting thanks to a 9.7 war season, which, by the way, was the second highest ever for a player over 38, again, behind Bonds. But this was the right call, as once again, Mickey Mantle was the best player in the league with another absurd 11.3 war season. Just an incredible year for Mantle. And so while Williams had an MVP-worthy season, he did not deserve to be the MVP. And especially when you consider his age, it's just incredible. I think of watching Joey Votto now, right? Who I consider in many ways the modern version of Ted Williams. And as he has aged, he's talked at length about how his swing has slowed down and his vision has changed and he doesn't see the ball the same way. He doesn't hit the ball the same way. All of those things, which is natural. That's how it's supposed to work. And in a lot of ways, for Williams, that never fully did the way we've seen a lot of other hitters and seen it happen to a lot of hitters. It was truly special to do this at 38 years old. Now, unfortunately for Gene Tierney, or if you're me, Master Roshi from Dragon Ball Z's quote about Candles, this rang true for Williams in 1958. It's not like he struggled or anything by like mere mortal standards. He had a fantastic season. He hits 328 with a 458 OVP and a 1.042 OPS, all of which lead the league. But you could see him slowing down in his power numbers a bit. He had just 26 home runs. He only had 23 doubles. He chipped in 85 RBIs and 81 runs scored in 129 games. He's an all-star yet again and still finishes 7th in the MVP voting, which feels more like a bit of a legacy or lifetime achievement vote, considering uh, he was worth just 4 war that year. But honestly, given he was only 40, he probably earned some bonus points, if we're being honest. Now, these last two seasons, of 57-58, were masking what kind of was the writing on the wall. And finally, in 1959, all the years and the wear and tear catch up to him. And 
Williams struggles all season with neck issues, and he's carried over into his hitting, which makes sense. I think until you've hurt your neck, you don't realize how much you like use your neck, or I guess at least attempt to hold it in place when you hit, and how much torque you put on that that part of your body. That it just it would be incredibly hard to swing a bat effectively with a neck issue, and for the guy who has the perfect swing, that just throws everything out of whack. He played in just 104 games, hitting 254 with 10 home runs and 15 doubles. He's named an All-Star that year, most out of respect. As at this point, most assumed Williams would retire. But that stubborn persistence and tenacity that made him a great hitter, maybe even the best hitter of all time, wouldn't let that be the end. He had spent his whole career proving the doubters wrong, proving the media wrong, and it feels fitting that at the end, he was telling Father Time in his own body that he would go out on his own terms and his terms alone. And so he comes back for the 1960 season. In fact, I believe he even took a pay cut to do it. And considering he's 41 years old at this point, he does pretty darn well. He hits 316 with a 451 OBP and a 1.096 OPS across 113 games to go along with 29 home runs, 15 doubles, 72 RBIs, and 56 runs scored. No player that ever played over 100 games in their year 41 season has hit for a higher OPS than Williams did that year. It's incredible. Very few players. I mean, I've been doing this podcast for almost, oh, for over a year now, and I've told the story of many baseball players, and very few of them get a say in how they end their careers. Usually their bodies or the league make that decision for them, essentially. And... Williams got to say, this ends the way I say it's going to end. And it's a pretty fantastic note to go out on. As was written in the, the Sabre article on Williams after he retired, he, he just, this is the fascinating part about Williams too, because he's a quiet guy in a lot of ways. He just made a statement about how the Knights of the Keyboard would not have Ted Williams to, to kick around anymore. And after he retires, he just disappears into the night with... Little to no fanfare, no announcements, and just takes off. He would spend a few years serving as the spokesman for the Jimmy Fund, which in Boston helped work to help leukemia patients in the area. And in fact, he would be active actually in the fight against cancer for many organizations throughout the rest of his life from there on out. And it feels at times we saw even more of how complex a man Ted Williams was after his playing career. He struggled through several marriages and had difficulties as a father. He described himself by saying, yeah, I guess I was a great hitter, but I was a lousy husband and a crummy father, which is harsh. But then he also spent the majority of his Hall of Fame speech campaigning for inducting Negro League players. There's even some speculation, actually, that latter act was informed by his experience and understanding of the world as a Mexican-American because his mother was Mexican, and he would also talk about how he wondered how different the world would have perceived him if his name wasn't Ted Williams, but he had taken his mother's name. It's just a very complex set of feelings and, and perspective for for Ted Williams. And and then you throw in the other side of it. Well, sometimes, obviously, he's remembered in a lot of ways for his wars with the press and fans. You can't even forget for a second that Ted Williams loved the game of baseball with every fiber of his being. You can see that joy and that love in the way he played. And the dedication approach he put into the game. And he was said to have played with joy and been a good teammate. 
and he really wouldn't stay away from baseball for long. He would manage the Washington Senators for a few years. Uh, he won manager of the year while coaching them. He ended up actually being, I think, the technically, then they moved to Texas, I believe, became the Texas Rangers, and he would manage them for their first season before um, asking out of his contract. He just, it just wasn't really his thing. He would also release the textbook on hitting called The Science of Hitting, which is still a go-to book for young hitters to this very day. After ending his managerial career, he served as a special assist, like a special assignment assistant to the Red Sox. This would usually mean that they'd like take a player and assign them to him, and he would take on special projects with that player or things like that. And it was a very active member of the Veterans Committee as well. Now, it wasn't all good or bad, but there were many controversies in his life. There was a memorabilia scandal later in life when he got into the memorabilia world. And he also, at some point, in a much valued and, and often joked about sort of decision, he decided to, upon his death, that he would have his body cryogenically preserved, which horrified his children uh, to a certain degree and was always considered a, a bit of an out-there decision. And it would happen, as far as I understand, he still is, when he would unfortunately die in 2002 after complications due to a stroke. And despite all this, despite all the complexities and complications in Ted Williams' life, it seemed like Teddy Ballgame's reputation and legacy with the fans only grew as he got older, which is a legacy you hope to have, right, as a ball player. And I'm glad to see it because it would be a true, genuine crime against baseball if we didn't properly appreciate the man who, at least I believe, was the most complete, pure hitter the game has ever seen. And it would have been a real true disservice that we didn't eventually really come around and appreciate just how good he was and how much he contributed to the game of baseball. He was a complicated man who certainly was far from perfect and had his own part to play in his relations with the media and with the fans, not all positive, um, but he loved baseball. And from the moment he was a child, he swore he would become the greatest hitter ever. And I think it's fair to say he was probably right. That's Ted Williams. I hope I did his story justice, and I hope if you weren't a Ted Williams fan, by now you are, or at least that you have a better understanding of the man and the ball player. Now, at this point, all we have left to do is to try and rank him on our list uh, of the most important players to telling the story of baseball. Now we're going to take our last break here, and when we come back, we'll try our best uh, to do just that. Welcome back. Now, before we dive in, let's revisit our list real quick. Fads come and go, and nowhere more than in the world of weight loss. That's why Noom has created weight management programs that are made to last. Noom uses science and personalization so you can manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. And they help you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have those cravings. Noom's personalized courses are easy to follow and will help grow your confidence with tools you can put into practice on day one. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life not the other way around. And based on a sample of 4,272 Noomers, 98% say Noom helps change their habits and behaviors for good. So stop chasing health trends and join the millions who have lost weight with Noom. Sign up for your trial today 
at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up for your trial today. We've ranked so far now 73 players. And to read off the top 20, and then we'll skip down. Number one on the list is Sadaharu O. Number two is Satchel Page. Number three is Josh Gibson. Number four is Barry Bonds. Number five is Mickey Mantle. Number six is Greg Maddox. Number seven is Mike Trout. Number eight is Ricky Henderson. Number nine is Ken Griffey Jr. Number 10 is Ichiro. Number 11 is George Brett. Number 12 is Adrian Beltre. Number 13 is Shohei Otani. Number 14 is Clayton Kershaw. Number 15 is Edgar Martinez. Number 16 is Sandy Koufax. Number 17 is Tony Gwynn. Number 18 is Hank Greenberg. Number 19 is Nolan Arenado. Number 20 is Joey Votto. Number 25 is Eddie Joss. Number 30 is Robin Yount. Number 35 is Fred McGriff. Number 40 is Mo Vaughn. Number 45 is Kenley Jansen. Number 50 is Evan Longoria. Number 55 is Moises Alou. Number 60 is Jason Veritek. Number 65 is Jason Bay. Number 70 is Mike Sweeney. And to round things out, number 71 is Herb Score. Number 72 is Mark Pryor. And number 73 is James Paxton. Now, where on this list do we rank Ted Williams? Well, let's first ask top 10, right? So let's jump straight to the top 10 here, which a number 10 is Ichiro. And I think even if you include Ichiro's Japanese league stats, Williams hasn't beaten average home runs, OBP, OPS plus, which by the way, I don't think I said earlier, Williams's career OPS plus is 191 for his entire career. And well, I've estimated, if you go back and listen to the episode, I think that's one of the first couple episodes I, I ever did in this podcast on Ichiro. I, I estimated, I think probably Ichiro has probably a total war number over 100, but it, obviously Williams hasn't beat there too. He's already well over 120 war. I didn't the two MVPs to Ichiro's one, even though obviously Ichiro won multiple, I believe, MVPs over in Japan. Uh, but and, and then to go the other way, if you're paying attention at all during this podcast, you realize Williams probably should have won at least five or six MVPs. So I I think I think looking at it, I'm I'm going to put Williams up ahead of each row. Each row has a ton of cultural impact. Obviously, it has a huge impact on how we view Asian baseball here in America and, and the connection between Asian baseball and Major League Baseball. And just his legacy is so big. But I don't think it's enough to bridge the gap between what Williams was able to do and the numbers Ichiro put up. So I think he goes up ahead of Ichiro. Now let's jump jump down a little bit. And what about moving, if we go up the list a little bit here, to Mickey Mantle at number five. Now again, Mantle gets bonus points, uh, and I think I said this during the Mickey Mantle episode, for being like the iconic figure of his generation, right? If you ask who's the guy you think of in the 1960s in Major League Baseball, most of us are going to say Mickey Mantle. And obviously that counts for something. And he was a three-time MVP, all deserved. But Williams was iconic too. Was probably one of the, if not the greatest, Boston Red Sox of all time. He won MVP twice. Again, as we said, he should have won many more times. And has Mantle beaten war, batting average, OBP, OPS, OPS plus, home runs, and RBI. So while I think Mantle is probably a bigger star than Ted Williams... I think it's a pretty clear-cut case here as well that Williams would move ahead of, of Mickey Mantle. 
But now what about last episode's main character, Barry Bonds, who sits at number four right now? In a lot of ways, Williams basically is Bonds uh, in terms of the, their playing style, in terms of their abilities. Bonds is obviously a lot faster and, and a better fielder than Williams was. But for the most part, they're pretty interesting comparison points. And both are two of the greatest OB, OBP hitters of all time, two of the most complete pure hitters ever. But Bonds' steroids and domestic abuse allegations hanging over his head. Yes, they both clashed with the media and with, with the fans. But... Bonds had none of Williams' joy and love of baseball in, in that way. And Williams obviously had none of these scandals and none of these blemishes on his on his record. And if you take it also out of those three lost prime years, while Bonds is way ahead of him in war and way ahead of him in home runs, you're talking about losing probably 30 war, like we said, probably at least 100 to 120 home runs. And then suddenly that becomes a lot closer of a comparison and that's not even factoring in, depending on what we feel about the he would have done in those years where he had to go to Korea. It might even be more like 150 to 160 plus home runs that he lost out on. And maybe even more 30 to 40 war, right? You know, I, I tried to factor that in here. Williams also has Bonds beat by a large margin in average. Also hasn't beaten OBP, OPS, and OPS plus. And yes, Bonds is the home run king. Has seven MVPs. Probably should have won more than just those seven. It's hard to not also let those other factors weigh in. Because in a vacuum, it's bonds, just on pure statistics. On this podcast, we don't ignore the outside stuff, especially when it comes to things like domestic abuse. In fact, I tend to wear those heavier than I do the steroids. And so I try to factor that in. But also, like, you can't argue that... You can't argue Barry Bonds' story isn't one of the most important in the history of baseball. But it is... One that I don't know if the game has ever really recovered from Balco and from Barry Bonds. And you can almost make the argument that while the story is important, it's the history of baseball, it's not a good one in a lot of ways. And I don't go that far. But you can make that argument, right? And obviously, again, Williams is contentious to be certain. But you, there's no spin you can put on Ted Williams' career that says he damaged the game of baseball. And, and its reputation. And I think based on that alone, you have to give it to Williams here. I, I think those those burdens are just too much to put Bonds ahead of Williams here. So now we're looking at number three here in Josh Gibson. I have a feeling this is going to be an, a difficult one. Both of these figures are huge to tell in the story of baseball. But, but Gibson is one of the most important, if not to some folks, the most important African-American player in the history of the game. And that's not to take anything away from Jackie Robinson or Satchel Paige, but Gibson was larger than life and played with the Negro Leagues. And he is a perfect embodiment of how baseball is formed, the mythology and the legends of America and the great game of baseball. And you start factoring in, and again, go back and listen to the Josh Gibson episode, but the Hall of Fame has them listed as, as the true home run king in North America. They have them listed as hitting well over 800 home runs and the hard part is for Gibson because we did not keep accurate records of the Negro League stats we don't have the numbers we don't have the stats and talk about that in the episode that I did but it makes it harder it, it certainly does you can't just do a one-to-one comparison here and say Williams isn't beat because of course Williams crushes him in career numbers but again that's only because we don't have Gibson's career numbers so this is hard this is a hard one in that 
I think I'm torn between these two things. I think historically and culturally, Gibson is probably more important. He probably means more in the long run, especially to African-Americans and African-American baseball fans. It probably means more to how we see and view baseball and how we talk about baseball. But if I grabbed someone off the street and was talking about baseball and said, tell me something about Josh Gibson, I'd probably get a lot of blank stares. And that, that's our fault. We've failed as storytellers in baseball, that we have not spread the story of Josh Gibson around enough. But everyone knows Ted Williams. And that's a hard one. It's just a hard thing to reconcile in terms of those numbers and those missing numbers. But with that being said, and I have a feeling this top three of Sadaharu O, Satchel Page, and Josh Gibson are going to be hard to break through, right? Just because they are so important and so iconic. I... Oof. With that being said, I feel, and I'd be more than open to have this conversation. And uh, please, if you have thoughts about how to take someone like Ted Williams and and someone like Josh Gibson and compare them, or if I'm doing baseball and, frankly, African-American baseball uh, a disservice by doing this, I obviously would never want to do that. And I'd love to hear more about what they felt about like the the cultural impact and, and ramifications of, the, of those players. I've thought about this for the, for the whole recording, frankly. I've been, this is the one I've been tossing back and forth between. I think Williams goes in front of Josh Gibson. Now, I can't put him above Satchel Page for numerous reasons. I just I don't think he he reaches that height. Satchel Page is such a, a barrier breaker and probably the greatest black pitcher ever. And we have more of his numbers. We have more of his records. So I think that's where I'm going here. Uh, you know, I'm going to let that settle and feel it out. And I'm going to come back to it. And so this might change. But I think for now, I am going to put Ted Williams in between Satchel Page and Josh Gibson as the new number three on our list here. All right. So that is our episode. We've now ranked 74 players on our list here. And I appreciate y'all being here. This was a fun episode to do. Uh, Ted Williams is one of my favorite players to read about. I'm a very interesting and fascinating and complicated man whose legacy we're probably still just trying to wrap our brains around sometimes. Thinking ahead to next episode. Um, so just like we did with Griffey and, and Henderson, I want to do a, a talk about who are the kind of the modern players who play this way, who have this sort of chip on their shoulder, play angry. And while that alone isn't the sort of basis for an entire episode, because the, a lot of the mo the current players haven't quite accumulated the years to be able to do that, I thought I'd also talk about maybe a couple other players that had shorter careers that kind of fit this bill too. I was thinking primarily Albert Bell is one that I think would be really fun to talk about, and a few other players throughout history that, that fit this bill too. That's going to be next episode is primarily we'll talk about Albert Bell and modern players who fit this character type. And then we'll fill in the gaps from there. So I look forward to that. That'll be our next episode. I'm hoping it'll be out in a week. But we, I may be stuck uh, through the end of the summer into the every other week sort of schedule I'm on right now. But I'm hoping to get back into every other week. So hang in there, folks. Look forward to that next episode. And until then, 
I'm Daniel Port. You can reach me at Daniel J. Port on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it now. And you can also reach the podcast at LB Legacies there as well. Or you can email us at longballlegacies at gmail.com if you have any comments, uh, criticisms, any thoughts, anything. In the meantime, this has been Longball Legacies. I'm your host, Daniel Port. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, folks. Enjoy just really the rest of your summer. Enjoy baseball. We're on the home stretch here. And I will talk to you all next time. Thank you so much. Thank you.